Hello and welcome to the first ever AEW Rampage review. I'm Michael Sidgwick in the very temporary absence of Adam Wilborn and I am joined by fellow Dadly Boy Michael Hamflick to discuss everything that happened on Friday's Landmark show. But before we get into it, if you're a fan of this sort of thing, make sure to subscribe to What Culture Wrestling on iTunes, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts from, the Daily Wrestling Podcasts. We preview and review AEW Rampage, Dynamite, WWE Raw, SmackDown and NXT, all pay-per-views. We hold wrestler interviews, we conduct wrestling roundtables discussions and host a roundup of the week complete with a bloody good quiz of course on wrestle culture as i said before on friday and i'm going to beat this one into the ground it's so great to have great wrestling back on fridays i legitimately thought this episode of rampage was virtually flawless beyond one middling thing at the very end but i like the idea behind it so much that i couldn't be too critical uh what were your broad thoughts I was ready for a good time when it came to a wrestling show on Friday night, and I did not need ACDC for that, it turned out. Um, yeah, really fun. Um, imperfect for me. Um, there was a few little teething troubles that I would say are teething troubles, not long-standing issues that I think are ultimately going to pollute the enjoyment factor of this um, for a long period. It felt like the fulfilment of a prophecy many had, ourselves included, um, about the idea of a high-quality one-hour wrestling show being a welcome tonic to the kind of content overload that has permeated in the industry for years now. Um, really well booked, really well managed. Not without things I would change, but very, very enjoyable as an episode one. Um, and a kind of yet more reason to be excited about episode two, beyond the obvious, the blindingly brilliantly obvious. Um, there's like other stuff here that made you just as excited for next week and the week after and the week after still be an appointment television. No, I completely agree with all that. And um, you've alluded to various flaws. We should get into that because they're not the kind of thing I suspect that might come up organically in conversation when we're putting Kenny Omega over to the hilt okay. as this absolute superstar that he is. So let's talk a little bit about the flaws and the interest of balanced coverage and because I don't really think they're going to come up um, in the context of what we're doing, which is basically reviewing three pro wrestling matches, which will have an emphasis on the in-ring. I was disappointed that I did not get the alluded to um, ring canvas AEW logo. I was also <laughs> a little bit let down by the fact that they didn't do enough, in my opinion, to differentiate Rampage from Dynamite as an aesthetic presentation. Someone tweeted, oh, I've seen some orange in the, um, the marketing hype videos. Might we see orange robes? I would have bloody loved orange robes. Yeah. I also, when I saw the lightning-themed um, graphics, on those adverts. I wanted to say like a, a ring skirt that looked like um, an orange version of the Ride the Lightning Metallica cover. <laughs> Didn't get that. Um, let's talk commentary before we get into the matches because I suspect that was the big thing that basically I saw a few complaints about AEW, AEW Rampage and exclusively they seem to be reserved for commentary. I'm going to go through the good and the bad before I get your thoughts before we get to the incredible first match. Four men is too many men, irrespective of how many people are great at the booth. If all four are great, that's still too much. All four were not. I thought Excalibur did a very, very good job of basically being Jim Ross, basically being the public fronting face of AEW on a Friday night. He couldn't possibly hold everything together, but in terms of the links, the segues, basically... I hope this doesn't get 
in, misinterpreted as a criticism of Jim Ross because I very much think he's got something to do with this. But Excalibur sans Jim Ross was really good. But Excalibur sans Jim Ross is very much the product of Jim Ross honing Excalibur and preparing him for this kind of role. Chris Jericho, his voice is too much, particularly with three voices next to him. He trod on Excalibur's toes too much for me. He's not there to do play-by-play. And in fact, I don't know what he's there for, but there were certain moves that Chris Jericho was calling. And I'm thinking, Excalibur's literally trying to do it at the same time, sort of adding to this sort of unwelcome cacophony. The thing about Chris Jericho is that he's a great promo. And he came up with some good one-liners. So I don't want to bury the guy completely, but I just thought, if nothing else, he was a bit redundant. Mark Henry, and I got this impression very quickly, needs to sharpen up his skills. Obviously, he hasn't developed them yet. This is one of his first times doing the gig. But when they were doing the match graphics at the start and running through the card, like his speech overlapped the graphics to the point where it was all a bit out of sync and off kilter, which wasn't an ideal start to the show. Um, Taz, I think because he was drowned out, you didn't really get the lovely dark version of Taz. You just got a Taz who talked a little bit because he could only talk a little bit. I was a bit kinder just because I enjoyed the show so much, but I suspect... Once the novelty of this wonderful first hour has worn off, I will get a little bit as irritated as everybody else seemed to be. It didn't feel permanent. It didn't feel possible that this booth could be permanent. But I kind of imagine people would have said that when Steve McMichael was on the first Nitro as well. And yet we had that before he ended up stepping into the ring. Um, It was too busy, but everybody could have called that. Probably all four of the announcers themselves could have called that it was going to be too busy. Taz was the biggest victim of that. He clearly spotting that he was probably going to be marginalised the more he tried to say, instead just tried to wait for gaps and hope that there was time to offer an insight. And that's not going to work a lot in 60 minutes, is it? 48, I guess. Um, So, yeah, he was the biggest victim of this, I think, because he's a joy in those oft-clipped... Look, the most I ever see a dark is when Taz says something funny. That's the real... That's how good Taz is. Um, And he was always... A treat alongside Michael Cole in like in SmackDown's like beloved original run as like the as the as the wrestling show. Um so you didn't get Taz the ringing out the commentator, respected commentator, you just got a bit of Taz. Um Mark Henry, I, I didn't notice that much. That's probably a criticism more than it is praise. Um and I think the I'm gonna dash off and be a roving reporter thing is interesting and not worth abandoning after one week. So I'm kind of willing to show a bit of patience because he's got more than just a new role to learn. He's got two or two or three because he's got a role and then he's got our interview. He wasn't particularly good asking the big questions either, but that's a hard job as well, and a different job at that. Um, you know, Alex Marvez can do one substantially better than the other and they've learned that as well. Excalibur, I would share your thoughts for the most part. I think as you've kind of observed with Dynamite for a little while now, he's been getting given a little bit more of that link work to do. And that's probably been in preparation for this. So well done on the like continued development, I guess, on a pattern of that. And, and on my take. And on your take. Well, well done Thank was you. actually first to you and then to Excalibur for his wrestling commentary, obviously. Thank um, you. Where it should be. The J in YTJ must stand for Joseph because he was going full Vic and I could not take it. A screaming banshee, more so than I like. Look, as you can tell by my throat, I was enjoying a good sing song at a gig over the weekend. But if I wanted a Fozzie concert, I would go to America in the middle of the pandemic. I wouldn't tune in for one hour of wrestling on a Friday night. Um, unacceptably bad, in my opinion. Um, the whole thing felt 
too vain for me to kind of ruffle its hair and say, oh, bless, we're all having fun. Like the original, this Chris Jericho was very, very welcome once. And it was when it was a novelty alongside Shivani, I think, in one of those very early pandemic dynamites when nobody knew anything. And it was just like, how can we maybe drag the arse out of a show here? And that was kind of appreciated, actually, that level of ridiculous enthusiasm and quite nice to have this locker room leader like name checking other talents and putting people over and showing that he's watched the tapes and that he's done his homework. All that stuff was really, really cool. Um, he felt so superfluous here. I didn't need his input. I didn't need the volume at all. Um, he was Michael Cole covering for Jim Ross in 1998 and that he couldn't graduate his reactions. So it's like, oh, you just shot your wad. You've got no time to reload and now you're going to do it all over again. So nothing felt like it was really landing. As you say, I think it was treading on toes. That's going to come because you've got four of them anyway, least of all when it's kind of this like nasally, like nearly whiny quality to his yelling at the time, like unpleasant. That was the difference maker for me in terms of an idea that didn't work with four commentators, including a big star and bad, as I say, Vic Joseph kind of difficult to pay attention commentary because I, I could have like quite easily put it on mute for a bit to take a break. It was sort of exhausting by the end. Um, kudos to Excalibur especially, but I can't see this lasting. I know Jericho probably won't take these criticisms very well initially, and then what he'll probably try and do is better himself. And on the on the sly, you know, it's a bit like when he got that grief, how he looked, and then you get in the toilet selfies and all that kind of thing. On the sly, he'll probably really try. He'll think, I want to be as good at this as I've been at lots of other things in wrestling. So he'll probably want to persist, but I would love it if somebody was able to just have a word with him and say, not only do you not have to do everything in this company, you're not necessarily the best at everything in this company and that's okay because everyone should just be able to do the jobs they're very good at and nothing more this is not the mom and pop shop is it like no. there's time and space for everybody yeah absolutely um it's important to get these words out as well because AEW is the listening company we've dedicated a lot of this podcast to it but at the same time they have the best interests in their audience at mind and i just could not go without this podcast without not burying the guy, but yeah, pretty much burying the guy. Like he didn't do a good enough job, in my opinion. He holds himself to a high standard, and I very much suspect that this four-man booth is not long for this world. Possibly they just want a Jericho in. It's just an added feature, an added selling point to get that rating. But um, yeah, they'll know this isn't tenable. They'll have watched and listened and read the reactions. But this was an absolutely great professional wrestling TV show. So let's continue this podcast in that spirit. And there's no better place to start. Christian Cage versus Kenny Omega for the Impact World title started off the show. It went 15 minutes, as I predicted. There was an ad break, um, purely because there's only one hour of TV. So they couldn't get away with doing it in uninterrupted. But I thought it was managed nicely enough. And I thought this match was absolutely tremendous and in terms of the in-ring quality in terms of the drama in terms of the finish i just thought this is a legitimately flawless presentation a quick rundown of the story if not quite the recap because i'm not adam wilborn and i'm not going to be chris jericho here <laughs> i'm just going to use that as a jokey excuse to basically say that i'm not anywhere near as good as those dramatic readings as wilborn is but essentially the story of the match was that Christian Cage is an incredibly astute and intelligent professional wrestler with a masterful ring IQ. These two men have 
again, as I called on Twitter, I'm going to put myself over and deserve to. They have such complimentary arsenals. We saw a tease of the one-winged angel out of the kill switch, given how the, the, the setup for both moves is almost identical. We had the spear into the knee trigger. We had Christian going full matrix avoiding one of those um, V-triggers. There was one absolutely spellbinding sequence um, on the back of that um, Matrix manoeuvre in which just before um, Kenny Omega was going to execute the German suplex, Christian Cage, who, as per the story of the match, was this incredibly intelligent and experienced wily veteran, held on to the ropes. That was an awesome spot. This match was genuinely great, I thought. So many great counters, not for the sake of it. They were all paying respect to the various arsenals and the study that went in, went, that went into it. It really felt for me like a properly strategic match that was also incredibly exciting and believable. It finishes when Don Callis distracts um, Brian Hebner and Chris Jericho had a great line at Earl Hebner's expense. So he's not completely redundant in this booth. And it was like, Earl Hebner, I can just imagine getting that heat as well. So that was quite funny. <laughs> Palace distracts Brian Hebner. And it helps that he's Brian Hebner's son. Because if there's one referee that can sell this kind of protracted spot, it was him. Chris Jericho thumbs Christian Cage in the balls. He, with a brilliant facial expression, summons the Young Bucks out, who strut to the ring, chair in hand. And the idea, which implicitly puts Christian Cage over before he actually goes over, is that he's going to drill him with the one-winged angel on the chair. And because of that wonderful, wonderful imagination these two men share, these complimentary arsenals, he is in fact able to counter it into the kill switch. Kenny Omega takes an absolutely fantastic headfirst bump into the chair. One, two, three. We have ourselves a new Impact Champion. We have ourselves an all-out main event that's got significantly more juice behind it than it did before the show was broadcast. And we have a lovely little moment backstage. And again, we're going to put people over when we put them under because there is such a thing as nuance. There's a little celebratory promo um, after the match, and Mark Henry is just so full of warmth and happiness that Christian Cage did this. Christian Cage, in response, just cuts his promo short, short to say that he's so happy to have Mark Henry here. It's nice to watch people have fun at their jobs. All of this, I thought, was inch perfect. What did you think? I want to talk about the three things I just adored about this finish, and you've kind of alluded to one there. Um, number one, I like that Christian cheated a bit. Um, he hasn't needed yet to show his bastard streak, but we know he's got one, a huge one at that. And one of these days, that's going to come out at the expense of people we love. And it's nice just to get that dropped in now. Number two, and this sort of builds on the point you made about him coming out with a chair, second episode of AW television in a row where Kenny has lost faith in the one-winged angel ahead of Hangman Page potentially being the one to kick out of it in the end. Like, why would his unstoppable finisher not be enough without the weapon, other than him being a cheating bastard? Um, and number three, the idea that Christian, what, three weeks ago, said, I'm going to stir up in the elite, and this is effectively botched interference. The Young Bucks have handed Christian the kill shot in the form of the steel chair. Um, he was there to call out Don Callis on being a total carny and ruin their moment on Dynamite. He's resulted in this, I guess, heel miscommunication. Callis pulling the referee, the Young Bucks sliding the weapon in, and all of that results in Kenny losing his first belt as the belt collector. Christian's done what he said he was going to do. Um, that's not going to break the elite up or anything, but it's at least, as we talked about on Wednesday and on Thursday's review, finally being the chink in Kenny's armour. 
we really we were like clamoring for Kenny to take a fall for the elite to absorb a defeat and it's come here um and it was in the way that Christian said he was going to do it as a babyface should even if it's sneaky stuff that he said he was going to do it's all very in character um I liked the experience more than like the match if, if I'm honest I thought the match was really good and I thought it was pretty cool watching like I love Christian Cage taking a snapdragon because that's a weird sentence isn't it like and he folded himself up beautifully for it at that and you just forget for a second that he's a man that's been retired for the better part of a decade wanting to take this most dangerous of snap German suplexes from Kenny Omega um but yeah the hot crowd were just incredible and up for it and you have to give a little bit of credit to Kenny and Christian for orchestrating that um but they were with them from the very beginning so you didn't even have what we talked about might occur. I think you compared Christian to Okada in a sense, in this case, where everything might slow down for the benefit of that hot five minutes. It was pretty much hot from the start. I think they got more from the crowd than they expected. So if anything, the slower pace of the opening five minutes like, was slightly disconnected from the audience that were just banging uh, every punch thrown. So it was the finish, if anything, was catching up with where the crowd had been for that sustained what it was like 15 minutes all of this pretty much um a really really joyous experience i remember this fondly and i cannot like heap enough praise on the booking because they have arrived at a christian cage kenny omega match i want to see and they've done it without shenanigans they've arrived at it with a clean finish um the all-out match is infinitely more interesting than it was six days ago so yeah like a success on that front too it's still a bit weird that christian sort of buried the title before winning it um, yeah, maybe that's, maybe that'll matter in the end, but I think they've probably like net sum is probably a greater achievement than where they were at a week ago in terms of that all out main event. So, like, fair play to them for that, too. This is such a great, great segment of television that I don't think I've seen any good faith criticisms of the fact that Christian Cage 47 XWWE is the first person to have pinned Kenny Omega um, since he won the title at Winter is Coming, but. People will remember this result. People will remember that Christian Cage pinned Kenny Omega. So that when Jungle Boy pins a Christian Cage, like, it's going to mean so much more. This is such an incredible bit of booking, like on behalf of Christian Cage. And I just think it'll yield dividends in the months and potentially if they can continue this awesome run years to come. Was there anything to Orange Cassidy lingering behind Vitamin C himself as the uh, title celebration took place as well? Like, well, my first thought was, oh, great, he's going to have a series with Jungle Boy, it's Christian Cage, and he's going to have one with Orange Cassidy. Yeah, like, just there it is. Just leave that there for another day. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right, over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs, also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. 
Before we go any further, though, this podcast is brought to you by Rocket Money. Do you ever feel like money is just flying out of your account and you've got no idea where it's going? Well, it's all those subscriptions. I mean, think about it. Between streaming services, fitness apps, delivery services, it is endless. I'm guilty of this, so I used Rocket Money to help me find out what subscriptions I'm actually spending money on, and it was more shocking than a wrestling betrayal. You see, Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has helped save its members an average of $720 a year with over $500 million in cancelled subscriptions. So stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash wrestling. That's rocketmoney.com slash wrestling. Rocketmoney.com slash wrestling. Yeah, absolutely. As mentioned, we got that really nice, all the better for how clunky it was, um, conversation between Mark Henry and Christian Cage. The warmth meant so much more than the polish and the the flow of that segment, if you like. And immediately following that, um, the show was formatted to be very, very match heavy, which I really liked. I love Dynamite as an episodic TV program. I think this is a perfect complement to it on such brief evidence um, it felt like it had a real sports vibe. It felt like this was a card of action more than like this really great episodic TV show that with its various backstage deals can sometimes feel contrived as American TV does. I got none of that from this. I'm a huge fan of this format early if in fact it does become the established format. Fuego del Sol versus Miro. There's only one word for this and it's perfect. This is absolute pro wrestling perfection. Fuego del Sol rocks Miro with the Tornado DDT before the bell sounds. This is great. They totally subvert the idea that we've seen a lot on Dark, that Fuego del Sol just needs to execute it. He's the master of it. He drills Miro with it, but the match hasn't started, so he can't take the pin. The match starts. He does it again. The crowd go ballistic. Two finishers executed. No, it doesn't really matter who's executing it, whether it's a total glorified jobber, like Fuego del Sol is, and that's a compliment, by the way. Um, It's just what he is, and he's a great one at that. Um, It's very hard to get glorified jobbers over. They are so valuable. They've done a masterful job with Fuego. But Miro rolls out the ring. Top New Japan tier selling the potential countdown from Miro, who individually has been absolutely phenomenal, as we've mentioned several times over the last however many months. He gets back in the ring, and he does it again. And you're thinking, well, three's the magic number. He's won. No, kicks out, Miro dusts off the cobwebs. Another tornado DDT is attempted. Miro, with absolutely inch-perfect timing, catches him. Bulgarian drop, gets kicked in the face, does Del Sol. And then, with this total backbreak-looking accolade, taps out, there's your match. Before we get to the post-match, this was perfect, was it not? Go on, agree with us. Yeah, Jesus Christ, then. Um, I feel as good about this sub five minute match as I do about every time I watch one, two, three, getting Owen Hart from King of the Ring 1994. Just so beautifully economical in how it used such a short runtime. As we said, it was kind of the perfect booking on paper and it became that in execution. Um, Ronda Rousey armbar like snap on that came over at the end, just the icing on the cake. Um, Miro doesn't need to be pissed off to do that to people, but it was great that he was. It was great that he'd been rattled enough to that particularly vicious and nasty um, game over. And Miro wastes nothing now as one of the very, very best in the world to do this. 
and tearing up the contract just as he torn up his opponent was a lovely way to celebrate the win. It was more like what started as Miro defending his title became him getting very, very pissed off with Fergo Del Sol. So I don't think the Miro at the start of this match would have needed to tear up the contract. The Miro at the end absolutely did because he'd been slapped silly by some punk kid briefly and that's exactly how he should react in the aftermath. Loved it. Yeah, they do. They've been sprinkling these little moments of just OTT cruelty that sell the actual spirit of the baby faces. To us, it's something to really get behind, but to mm. the heels, it really pisses them off to do like acts of cruelty, whether it's like the BTV trigger or ripping up the contract. Just these glorious little thought out details crafted by a company that almost to a man and a woman is just so passionate about getting everything as over as it can possibly be. Uh, in the post-match, um, Sammy Guevara's music hits and he is followed on the ramp by Tony Khan. They have a little silent conversation. You can kind of see where it's going and wonderfully, you can tell by Fuego Del Sol's face that he kind of knows where this is going to. He is an ugly crying mess in the most <laughs> possible way. Like He looks like he's so overwhelmed with emotion happiness the the desperate hope that is happiness is actually a real thing and it turns out to be um the case tony khan hands sammy guevara something that something reveals itself after guevara comes to the ring he says to del sol look you're one in 50 no one cares everyone absolutely loves you and i've been chosen to do this because i am your best friend you've he basically says you've gotten over to such an incredible degree that Fuego del Sol, you've earned your job. You are now all elite. The crowd loves this, just like the crowd loved the match, just like the crowd were awesome all night long. Del Sol and Guevara embrace in the middle of the ring. It's genuinely lovely, feel-good stuff. I want to talk about the Tony Khan thing as well, because I don't know how happy you were about that. My thoughts were Tony Khan coming out would to me, legitimise this in the mind of Del Sol as a real thing that's happening. He gets a little bit over on his own, but what did you think of all of it? Well, I've always been Bart Simpson with Sideshow Bob, haven't I? There was always that one little boy that knew eventually he were like, I just eagerly await these to happen and happen and happen until eventually we get him as not a regular authority figure, but just he gets named enough that he might as well be on the stage half the time anyway. So we're kind of at that point with Tony Khan now. Um, otherwise, this was nice. Um, this is a thing in wrestling at the moment where you can be clever in the way that you deliver the nice conclusion that doesn't, doesn't like, it's all about technicality, but it doesn't technically betray the stipulation of the match. And I'm thinking also of Indy Hartwell and Dexter Loomis very recently, produced a nice thing that the people want to see in a way that feels like it's gotten around what you promised. But they like, didn't expressly say if you no, fail. That's the thing. It wasn't. It was never laid out as such. It was like, I guess the implication was, well, if he wins the belt, he must be all elite because he's yeah. a champion. You yeah. can't have an unemployed wrestler be a champion. So that, that was kind of without saying it's not like his contract was on the line. Miro took it upon himself to take that away from him. And again, it's a bit like the I was sort of defended the Indy Hartwell Gargano one. It was like her life can't be controlled by that other man's winning a wrestling match. And that was that's how you work around that one. And it's nice things for a crowd that wants to see nice things in fan service that, and we've touched on this with a million other things, and you've said before about how WWE and to a lesser extent TNA have broken the brains of wrestling fans, but how much had wrestling lost touch with people's emotions that all of us are still guilty of anticipating, like trolling booking, 
or meanness or cruelty as the standard rather than just something like this and something like how Brit was responded to in her hometown and all that kind of thing. Um, so yeah, just a nice scene and I'm all, I'm all for that on any show. I thought it was really heartwarming and I'm a sentimental guy and I do enjoy these moments, but my mind instantly went, right, okay, what you've done is you've got this guy who can be this absolutely wonderful guy who can just lose all the time. Mm. He can lose all the time. And my immediate thought was, what great job they've done because you've got the moment, but the moment will fade. These things do. What you've got now is a guy who can lose definitively, who's really, really like beloved and people will hate the guys who beat him. Right? Oh, perfect thing they've done. They've done the nice bit. Now let's get cruel. Obviously, MJF beat this guy. I know. Obviously, Ricky Starks beat this guy. Like, they've done a great job. They've done a great job with it. Do you know what, as well, I had the same thought, and I'm just going to echo something I said on Dynamite. When Daniel Garcia was out there, I got so hyped that this prodigious 22-year-old heel was potentially going to be this big star over the next few years because I'm already so wowed. Because it's like, MJF, 25, ancient. Sammy Guevara has already stepped into Chris Jericho's shoes from two years ago with him. Like, they're yeah. already, the young kids are already such made men that they can now start paying that forward. Like, really, really remarkable work on the development of their, that, that underneath tier to become the new top guys that Guevara could take a moment like this when on any other week, he's still the guy with Jericho's arm around him. You're going to make it one day, kid. He's already become the guy that can say you're going to make it one day, kid. Like, really, really impressive that AW have done that with their underneath tier. They're already their own top guys. Yeah, absolutely. Can't disagree with any of that whatsoever. Um, we get a brief rundown of next week's Dynamite card, and we also get a special advert for the first dance, which again is just a further reiteration that, yes, CM Punk's going to be there. We're going to do this incredible show to welcome him back and watch it, and how on earth could you not after a package like this? And then we're straight to the main event. It's a very compact show, um, free of angles and free of promos, but at the end of the day, these matches get the juice on dynamite and they get paid off. Lovely little sports-oriented format that never feels dry because they've done the work, to quote the great man himself, Cody Rhodes. Um, immediately, the uh, central theme of what I thought was very focused and not particularly ambitious match to its betterment um, revealed itself when Red Velvet, who played heel quite very well, I thought, um, targeted Baker's arm. Um, after Baker, of course, had initially and immediately went to the lockjaw to tell people basically how Baker's going to win. Um, she was stopped by winning, um, at least immediately, by Red Velvet's heel work. Um, she eventually ripped off the um, cast that had covered Baker's very real um, fractured wrist. In between this technical work and these attempts to apply and thwart the lockjaw, you had the only real indication in the guts of the match that Baker was a heel when um, Reba, not Rebel, or Rebel, not Reba, attempted to interfere on her behalf. This is pitched more as a crowd pleaser, incidental, in my opinion, than something that muddied the divide too much, because I thought mostly this was Britt Baker playing situational babyface, Red Velvet playing situational heel very well. And I thought the um, finishing sequence in particular was very good. If you notice the way in which the lockjaw was applied, with the weaker arm, the legs did the trapping and not the injured arm because it had been compounded. Um, that finish was particularly well judged, I thought, and it led to Dr. Brett Baker winning the match, after which they showed Baker's parents in a crowd that just went pretty much ballistic for everything they did. 
Um, Chris Statlander hit the ring after Baker went full heel, having played situational babyface. This all got a little bit muddled, if I'm being honest, but not to the detriment of the heat because they were going to go crazy for whatever Baker did. And what Baker did was veer between that spectrum as she's been doing on TV since. Um, double or nothing, effectively. But in this context, it was going to work because nothing was going to fail. Um, Statlander and Velvet are beating up Baker. And this summons a returning Jamie Hayter. This is, there are two problems with this and one great thing. The great thing is that she was class on those early dynamites and it's great to see her back. The second, well, the, the first of the two problems are this. One, she looked unrecognisable um, from the Jamie Hayter who first entered AEW. And as much as we thought she had loads of promise, with all due respect, the Jamie Hayter who then left AEW was there such a small amount of time that people didn't really remember it anyway. So this was a little bit all over the place, and I'm being perfectly honest in the post-match, but again, it was all elevated by the crowd, mostly going banana for everything. Uh, what were your thoughts on the match and the post? It's Jamie Heater, isn't it? They have yeah. at least delivered who Britt was promising, I suppose. Um, mm, I, I, So I think Red Velvet and Britt Baker deserve credit for working quite a good match when I never felt they weren't swimming against the tide. I, it, it, it was too clunky in its dynamics for me. Um, but I had a great deal of admiration for the pair of them for, for trying to get the story over. I just didn't think it worked. Um, it, you, you cannot undulate so much with heels and baby faces as they did here, both in their working styles, in terms of the Rebel Not Reba, Reba Not Rebel throwing out spot and how that's supposed to work in front of a live crowd versus how it did because it's Brit's hometown. Like, I agree with you about situational characters because, I mean, one of our all-time favourites wouldn't have existed, you know, in the Canadian Stampede main event. You know, I, like, when it's done well, it's perfect. And um, Cody's very good at it in an AEW context. And I thought the work was good and I liked Red Velvet. We said this on the preview put ourselves over as usual like this felt like it was going to be a test for Red Velvet tonight can you do this one night and you know continue development I thought she did um it's Britt Baker's best match in a while like best match end to end in the way that it didn't the Sheena match got good at the end but it sagged at the start this didn't have any of those problems so there was there was quite a lot to like here but I thought it was like all where they were like fighting against something rather than just being given the it wasn't like the floor is yours it was right you've got these factors to work with can you still make it good I think they just about got there um, AW cannot do this debut thing still. Like, still, like they're gonna nail it on Friday because it's CM in Punk. But like this Excalibur shouting, "It's Japanese Deathmatch Luther down your ear!" Still isn't it, and it wasn't it then, and it's not it now. Butcher and Blade, you know the list goes on. Um, and I felt for Jamie Hater a little bit because you could, it was kind of written on the faces a little bit that again this was probably the wrong building for this payoff. But they're kind of proceeding head down with Britt Baker as a heel. We can complain all we want once a week. That's clearly not changing. She's gone and got her back up. Um, so they're kind of going to proceed with that. It's probably going to lead to a story that maybe this will be the thing that baby faces Britt. Maybe Jamie Hayter will turn on her because like they've... What wasn't Jamie Hayter's match against Britt Baker? It wasn't the exact same. same. I, like the old days when Britt was just a kind of like white meat baby face. So maybe that's to foreshadow an eventual feud for Britt. I don't know. I just... They put themselves in this position of like what they were working against. And I still don't really know why that was because I think I got a little bit more out of the promo on Wednesday and I did this match because the promo, you were just allowed to have, like to relish the joy of it. 
like that registered more here than when Brit was trying to be a cheat and just like stop the crowd in the tracks before they came up again for a, so I'm not sure all of this worked but the match was fine great viewing experience elevated drastically by how loud the fans were mm. and I thought the actual focused storytelling of the match like I'll bury WWE for its really unambitious in-ring but the idea here is that you want to accentuate the positives and hide the negatives Dr. Britt Baker still isn't there as a complete in-ring performer but she's so over and she's such a great animated personality in the ring that if anything you really want to just make it more focused the storytelling and I thought they got that bang right it's one of those things where in the moment it's so loud everyone likes Baker it's the Rampage premiere everyone's high on what had been an absolutely phenomenal show to that point that when you unpack it like this not only is it worse in retrospect but it's going to be worse going forward because you've got a superstar babyface who the fans simply refuse to accept as a heel who's just become none more of a heel because she's got a manager and a heater. Uh, it's wrong. Like, it's wrong. <laughs> bad. To call like, Alan Partridge. <laughs> I, um, I just wanted to add, and it does sort of build on just how fantastic the atmosphere was for this whole episode and how the crowd received Britt Baker. Me and you, collectively, must have watched 100 shows, probably, out of Pittsburgh in our time. Regular spot for WWE. I'm sure ECW might have ran there with them being Pennsylvania-based. Others, you know, we've seen enough of Pittsburgh on television before. How is it that we've only just seen people swinging towels around their heads? Like, fair play at whatever it is that AEW have done to understand whatever this localised custom is and hand out some of them. <laughs> they don't live in a cruel bubble. It's, it's great. It's great. Like, I'm, I'm, I want to put them over for it because now, like Chicago or like New York City, I'm going to remember when they're going to Pittsburgh, you know, like it's it's made that town identifiable in a way that I want to see them go there again. And I want to remember what it, how they're going to take to that. Like, I don't recall anybody swinging a towel for Shane Douglas. <laughs> whenever like, whenever yeah, anybody yeah, swung right. by Pittsburgh. I just, how have we never seen that? It's obviously some sort of local sporting tradition. It's an awesome visual and kudos to AEW for spotting that and getting able to make the most of it with those Brit Baker, like, it's a rally towel, isn't it? Ricky Ortiz used to do it on yeah. Ben Roy Turner's ECW. And I just, yeah, like, I, I can't believe we've never seen that because I care about this, about seeing wrestling in this destination now. Yeah, no, it's just they don't live in a cruel, demented bubble in which they believe themselves to be better than every other city in the world. I go to Newcastle and putting their Big Ben on the Titantron. Yeah. We're live here <laughs> in England. Just, I mean, WWE is just multifariously incompetent. <laughs> That's basically it. Um, and AEW is not. Um, AEW proved that by putting on an absolutely tremendous um, premiere of Rampage, which, as you can tell, um, Hamlet and myself have really put over, but without being a little bit too rah-rah, because there were some flaws in the booking and, indeed, um, the execution, which hopefully will be ironed out. But let us know what you thought of the premiere edition. I just like to say the word premiere. <laughs> of the premiere edition of AEW Rampage in the Twitter comments below this post. Uh, whilst you're at what Culture WWE, of course. Uh, whilst you're there, you can follow Michael Hamflet at... Michael Hamflet. You can follow me at M. Sidgwick. Once again, you can follow the entire crew at Walk Culture WWE. And we'll be back for more AEW coverage later in the week by previewing and reviewing... Dynamite and Rampage, the first dance. We can't wait for that, but we do have to wait. And until then, we will see you soon. 
developing your passion into a business with Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time. The world's best converting checkout. Shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website, across social media, and everywhere in between. Now that's music to your ears. Any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify. Start your dollar a month trial today at shopify.com slash records. 